This episode was recorded before April 1st, 2022, when Danielle Smith announced her candidacy for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Welcome to Danielle Smith's Razor Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. There are people out there in the world that are saying, how do I make money off that? How do I clean that up and actually make money from it? And that is what we call an envirepreneur. It's an environmental entrepreneur. It's somebody that says, here's, here's, a, here's an environmental problem and I wanna help fix that problem. And to do that, I'm gonna try to come up with a way to generate revenue. So I am doing good for the environment and I'm doing well for myself also. Hello, it's Danielle Smith once again. Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. And I am delighted today to speak with Holly Fretwell. She is a research fellow at PERC, which is the Property and Environment Research Center. I'll tell you why I stumbled on that in just a minute, as well as the senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. And uh, she joins us now. Holly, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much, Danielle, for inviting me. You bet. I used to call you the Political Economy Research Center. That's why I, I knew you had a, a name change recently. But I think the name change that you've had is, is such a good one because it really describes the kind of work that you do, looking at how property rights and the environment work together hand in hand. Now, that is probably going to be a concept unfamiliar to a lot of people. And so I, I really want to start there because what, you've been very influential on my thinking about the environment, Perk has. And one of the groups that I first got involved with when I got involved in advocacy, the Western Stockers Association, they're a group of ranchers, and they call themselves the voice of free market environmentalism since 1896. So for, for people who haven't heard that term, free market environmentalism, I know you use it too. So And maybe that's where they got it from in the first place. But tell us, what does it actually mean? Well, free market environmentalism really starts with property rights, and that's why we changed our name to the uh, Property and Environment Research Center. And it really is looking at property rights and looking at individuals' behavior and saying, you know, if we allow markets to function freely, uh, individuals will actually negotiate and come up with better environmental solutions. And as long as we have clear property rights, we are going to incorporate all the cost and benefits of our actions into our negotiation process. And that's why we can see sort of this movement towards what the socially efficient level of um, environmental quality would be. I mean, we can imagine a, a world where, um, maybe I should say we can't imagine a world where we have 100% perfect environmental quality, right? There are pollutants that exist around that we're willing to put up with. Um, part of that is just in our daily lives and individuals, you know, cause harm to the environment in some ways and enhance the environment in other ways, as do wildlife and other species. And allowing ourselves to make negotiations and trades enables us to see what the highest valued use of these various different resources are. As long as we incorporate all of the different key characteristics of our property rights. And, you know, I would say that that includes what I call the deal of property rights or the W double D-E-A-L deal of property rights. And that is that we can define the property right. We know what we own and we all agree that we have these ownership rights. It's defendable. That is I can enforce my right um, to the point that I can actually exclude other people from using my property if I want to 
or I can allow them to, to come on my property and to access my property. But if I can't exclude others, then uh, there's no reason for me to invest in my property, right? Um, and we have what we sometimes call the tragedy of the commons, which maybe we can talk about um, in a little bit. Um, it's also important that we can appropriate our property, and that is that we can sell or trade it. Because if I can't trade or sell to you, then I don't realize how you benefit from the resources that I own and to allow for those highest valued uses, I wanna make sure I understand what what you benefit from my property. And I might decide in my, you know, my, my horse pasture out here that I have where I have no horses that I really want horses because I don't wanna maintain them and I don't wanna take care of them, but somebody's gonna pay me to put horses on my property and I might even build a barn, which I actually did, so that somebody will pay me more because that property is now more valuable to them that I have a barn on it. So that tradeability and that appropriability is really important. And finally, the L is for liability. And that is that I have to be liable and accountable for what I do on my property so that I'm not harming someone else. And this is the area that we oftentimes see environmental problems if we have pollutions and pollutants that are going off of my production process and I am not accountable for that to somebody else. It doesn't mean I have to have zero pollution. It means that I have to consider and maybe compensate other individuals for those pollutants that I am putting out onto them. But if we have that clear, secure property right, then we can allow these negotiations to take place and people can negotiate with me for whether I'm polluting or not. Um, and as a result of that, we're going to come up with a more efficient solution. You know, as you were talking, I think I was ticking off boxes thinking, oh, sure, that makes sense for my personal home or if there's an acreage or if there's a private landowner who operates a farming operation. But I can just imagine some of the young environmentalists gasping at the idea that private property makes sense for our public lands, our grazing lands, our forested lands, our, our public parks. And so I, I want to address that a little bit because there was a, a young woman I met recently who we were talking about energy development. We were talking about the environment and, and she made the comment, oh, what a, what a shame that John Locke has had so much influence on our thinking because the real problem is that people think that they can own stuff just by working the land and working their labor into it. So there, I don't know that it's natural for people to think of private property as being the solution, especially when it comes to public lands. Because I think that viscerally people think that there should be large portions of our land base that are held in common, accessible in common, that the government should be the steward of those lands. Maybe I'll just get you to answer the what, what viscerally that concern is. Why, why do you think that young woman thinks that there's something wrong with private property that public property sells or, or can solve? Uh, you know, it's a super interesting question, but let's look at our public lands and say, first of all, our public lands are privately owned. They're just owned by the government. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are some lands that are not owned or maybe some um, some resources that are not owned um, and where we actually have this commons, right? So let's go to our fisheries. If you go out into our fisheries, out into the middle of the ocean, you know, beyond any um, any ownership by by the different countries, you have a free for all. You have a commons. Who actually owns that? If no one owns it, everyone owns it. And guess what happens? Hmm. We have a tragedy of the commons. And what the tragedy of the commons is is that we have this open access that anybody can use and no one person can exclude anybody else and so everybody's going after this resource and as people are going trying to catch more and more fish um if one person stops fishing and says oh my gosh this is horrible we're overfishing the the fisheries here right we're overfishing the resource and they stop fishing somebody else is just going to catch their fish 
So there's mm -hmm. no incentive for anybody to stop catching and to actually conserve these fish unless we have some, some property rights on it where we can actually exclude some people from it. So when people are talking about public lands as a commons, you know, maybe we as a society own that, but the government actually controls that. So then we want to look at and say, well, are those lands really being managed the way we want them to be managed? May, may, let me, before we get into that, because I think I think that's a really important distinction. And so I just want to explore that a little bit because I'm trying to think of other, before we get into the uh, privately held land, but it's government held land. I think uh -huh. that's, that's important. But then you have true, true commons. Mm -hmm. So the only things I can think of as true commons then would be, as you point out, the open ocean, the air. That's why we get into this issue of CO2 mm -hmm. emissions and how to handle them space we've got a lot of people now interested in exploring space and i i don't i don't know how we decide how how much space junk can be circling our planet but that's sort of another another issue perhaps for another day but but there is a way to solve true tra true commons problems like you described the overfishing problem through things like quota systems and i, I wonder if you can help us frame our thinking around because you can't really cordon off portions of the open sea but how do you use things like quota system to create a property-like right so that you can avoid overfishing? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's another great question. And if we look at our quota systems, what we've actually done historically when we think about fisheries, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us back close to the shore where we actually have some, um, some country ownership goes out 200 miles beyond our shoreline. So we actually have countries that, that, that can sort of create these laws and regulations. And originally, when we think about our fisheries regulations, they started to shorten the season, right, for commercial fisheries. We're overfishing the seas. So instead of allowing our halibut fishermen to, um, and fishers to fish for six months, we're going to shorten it to three months. And we're going to shorten it to two months. And we keep overfishing it. We're going to shorten it to one month. Oh my gosh, we're going to shorten it to two days. Up in Alaska, we actually had a halibut fishery um, that was limited to two 48-hour uh, periods or something like that in, in, in our history. And yet they kept catching more fish right? How do you catch more and more fish in such a shorter period of time? Well, we're over-investing in these resources, right? Our fishers are going out there buying bigger boats, better nets. When nets get caught together, they're not cutting, you know, they're not trying to untangle them. They don't have time to do that. They're cutting them off um, and just moving on, right? So we're losing a lot of fish in this process. We're still catching more fish than we previously were. We're dumping it all in the docks at the same time. We have this glut in supply. Um, and then as citizens, we get fresh fish for, you know, a week or two out of the season and then the rest of it's frozen fish or our quality is down. So after realizing over years that this really was not a good solution, we've created what we call tradable quotas. And the tradable quotas actually are allocated in different ways, but typically look at the historical uh, fishers that are out in this particular commercial fishery and their historic catch. And then they, they determine, they, they, they scientifically determine sort of what, what is the expected amount of fish that actually live in this population right now and what is the estimated number of fish that need to be in this population to enhance it or to, to make sure that it's sustainable and then the difference between those two is what's allowed to be caught and they call that the TAC or the total allowable catch and then they divide that TAC up amongst the existing fishers in that fishery and again usually based on their historic catch like if you historically caught about 10 percent of the of the fish each year then and you would get 10% of the tack. And now what we've done is we've um, said, okay, you're only allowed to catch a certain amount of fish. Um, and, and as an individual, uh, you actually want to make sure that everybody else is only catching their amount of fish, because if this is set up properly, this is going to actually see an increase in the number of fish 
in the future, that fish population is going to go up and you're still going to have your 10% tacked, but that 10% is going to be more fish in absolute numbers, right? So you're going to be able to increase your actual catch, even though it's the same percentage. And that's essentially creating a property right or a quasi property right. It's sort of a, um, a a cap and trade program, if you will, in that the government has come out and said, okay, we need to, we need to regulate this in one way or another. So we're going to set this maximum amount that each person can catch. We're going to allocate that. And then you have to stick with that, but you can trade because if you're a fisher, that's maybe not as good as somebody else, you can actually sell your tack to somebody else that's more efficient at, at that, that fishery. And so it's, it's tradable. And by doing that, we have actually seen increased in fish populations. It's not a perfect system. There are mm. certainly some, um, some pieces in there that we can argue over, um, but we're much better than we were. And I think that's one of the really important things for us to think about as we think about um, in any problem, but particularly in the environment is compared to what, right? The ideal solution or the ideal outcome may not be possible, right? So how do we get close to that? And what system is gonna get us closest to that? And what are the incentives that are being driven in those different incent in, in those different systems? And the tradable quotas seem to be a really good system to get us much closer to where we wanna be. And we're seeing rebounding fish populations as a mm -hmm. result. I like the way you described it too. I think it'll be familiar to a lot of Canadians because we've got supply management systems around our dairy and our eggs and our chickens. And so I think we have an understanding of how that might work and how quotable quota does end up getting traded. The, the thing, and I, you also pieced one other important thing together for me, because as we're talking about plastics pollution in the oceans, one of the things that is a, a big source of that pollution is fishing nets. And I always wondered why on earth would there be fishing nets left behind? And so thanks for helping to describe why it is that's contributing to our world ocean pollution problem as well. I wonder if um, you, you've also got me thinking about, this is the approach I think that they're trying to take on reduction of CO2 emissions, but the problem with CO2 emissions is no one's defining an optimal level. The optimal level is zero. And that I think may be part of the issue when we talk about the environment is that we are comparing where we're at with some kind of utopia, a utopia which probably isn't achievable. But if you are trying to achieve a utopia, you're, you're probably not going to structure markets appropriately. I wonder, I wonder if you could apply the thinking that you just gave me to how a proper carbon credit trading system might work. I, I'm, I, I can't think on my feet fast enough to think about how that would work, but do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's actually a, a great point. And, you know, we don't want that utopia because it's not possible. We want something that's actually realistic, that's understanding the trade-offs that exist in society that we're willing to take, right? We're really not willing to, to stop driving entirely to, I mean, if you go back to pre-fossil fuel times, people lived in pretty miserable lifestyles, right? It was very, very different when we didn't have the energy that we have today. I don't think people want to go back there and are willing to accept the trade-off of no CO2 emissions to go back to some um, extreme level of poverty. Uh, my concern when we look at some of the um, some of the cap and trade for carbon um, and carbon emissions is that CO2 is everywhere, right? It is everywhere and, and it comes out, I mean, every time we exhale, we are exhaling CO2. You know, when we open a pop can, it's CO2. When we're, you know, when we're burning fossil fuels, it's CO2. When the, uh, when the forest is, is um, degrading, it's CO2 that's being emitted and methane and all these other things that are, um, that we're concerned about in the atmosphere. And so when you're trying to put that cap on CO2, 
who who wins? What are what are you actually capping, right? When on the fisheries and even on um, say utility markets, when we did some of the um, sulfur dioxide um, uh, trading, cap and trade on on SO two, um, it's very homogeneous. Right? We have this industry that's very homogeneous. The fishers are very homogeneous. We're talking about everybody's going out and halibut fishing. It's a small group of individuals that we can that we can communicate with and that we can allocate those that 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 right to fish to. Um, when we're looking at our utility companies um, that are producing energy, and we're saying this is the amount you're allowed to produce. You're absolutely right. We put a we put a cap on it. This is the the max amount you're allowed to do. But these these companies are fairly similar as well. Now we're saying, let's put a cap on CO2. Again, to your point, what is the cap? It's not, mm -hmm. it's not zero. We have to have something because, because we're going to continue to pollute at some level. Um, and also, who are you capping? Are you capping everybody that's doing this? Are you capping every car on the road? Are you capping just industries? And suddenly you come into this sort of um, uh, political lobbying, and, and that's maybe go back to the political economy research center. Why are we called that? Because you know we have these groups that lobby politicians that, that say we want a seat at the table and we want some favor seeking, and so we are going to actually sit down and and try to get what we want, and that may or may not be the best outcome for the rest of society. So when we're trying to put caps on on carbon emissions we've suddenly created this um, this interest in uh, lobbying governments to make sure that they're they have a seat at the table so that they're not the ones that are that are getting this big you know this small cap so that they can't pollute very much or that they're not getting capped at all and it becomes this really high cost um, regulation rather than the type of regulation we saw with the fisheries or with the utility companies um, when you when you, again when you just have this homo homogeneous group it just becomes much more expensive to try to cap that and i'm not sure that that is the right solution for for huh. our carbon emissions i just think it's it's really costly and and be being me um i'm not really pro taxes by any means but if if you really wanted to solve that through either cap and trade or through taxes and those were your only two options those are not I would take a third option, but if those were your only two options, I would say a tax probably has lower transaction costs um, to actually have an impact in in um, putting an additional cost on carbon emissions. You know, you've you've got me thinking about that because you're right. When you're talking about the problem of fishing, you at least have a localized geographic area or general area of range for those animals, so that you're so that you are able to get a, a, gen, a population measure. And you have a certain number of players who will be in that particular fishery. When you're talking about global climate change and, and global emissions, we already have a problem where certain countries are opted out, even though they're the biggest players. And we don't we don't have an optimal level that we've decided the world will be able to have X amount of emissions and then have the kind of trading system that you've described. So it is complicated. Now, you said there might be a third option besides car cap and trade and besides carbon taxes what's the third option I, you know i think there's all sorts of other options that exist out there but but one of them is just seeing what people are actually doing and how people are adapting how societies are mm -hmm. adapting to some of this and and part of that is it's really important to a lot of individuals to reduce their own carbon footprint and so they're starting to do that and they're starting to uh, encourage other companies to to do that and and as a result we see a lot of companies out there that are saying oh yeah we are concerned about this you know we have airlines that are now saying you know we actually are um investing in in carbon sequestration in this way or that way so that we can reduce our carbon footprint and this is becoming a really um a sort of a, a standard way of doing business in the in the developed world now in the developing world that's 
that's obviously very different. But who are we to say that you cannot use your fossil fuels to become more prosperous in your country um, because we say so and we don't want you to be emitting those carbon um, that carbon into the atmosphere? And I don't think that is a good solution. In fact, if we decrease prosperity across the globe, especially in our developing countries, we're likely to see more environmental harm rather than less. And that is what the, the empirical data shows us over time, is that the more prosperous a country becomes, the more we invest in our environmental quality, because we can't, right? Because we mm -hmm. can afford to. If, if you're living in a country where you can barely feed yourself and your family and put clothing and, um, on, on their bodies and, and you know a, a shelter over their heads, you're not concerned about the carbon emissions that, that, that you're burning of wood is, is causing, right? You're really concerned about just living today and maybe, maybe tomorrow. Um, so if we really wanted to see a better, cleaner environment, I think a big part of that is just trying to help enhance prosperity across the globe. Wow. Let me, let me ask you another question related to, because um, I think I'll get an answer for how we clean up the space junk by asking how we clean up the, the true commons, which is, which is our ocean system. Because I think this is connected to, we always try to find um, proxies to try to deal with the overall issue rather than deal with the issue directly. So I think you've described very well the problem that we have with CO2, but we now do have this problem of all of, all of these plastics and garbage that are in the ocean, the big Pacific garbage patch. Um, nobody owns it. Nobody's responsible for it. Um, we can talk about ways that we would we would address the issue to prevent that from growing. Do you have some thoughts though on how you clean it up? How do you clean how do you clean up a commons area like that, which is creating problems for fish habitat? apparently killing birds and animals, but, but nobody really has the authority over that area or the possession of it or feels like they have the obligation to address it. What, what, do you have some thoughts on how that can be solved? I, I mean, I, I think you've sort of hit it right there that nobody owns it. And if nobody owns it, nobody's really going to take care of it. And so we see that we're pulling resources out that are valuable to us when we have this commons, um, but we don't have anybody that's really willing to invest in taking care of it. Um, I don't have great solutions on, on sort of what we do with some of the garbage that's existing out there, but I think we do need to realize as well, where is that garbage coming from? You know, when we in the United States say we're not going to drink with straws, we're not going to use our plastic bags, you know, that's a great statement. Um, but most of that garbage is not coming from the developed world. It's coming from the developing countries that really don't have a good place to put their garbage, that really haven't addressed some of, of uh, the waste issues that they that they have. And I think some of that needs to start there. You know, how do you get it there? Well, if they can't afford to do it, they're not going to do it. Again, it comes right back to prosperity. If we enhance, you know, if we help them become wealthier, which oftentimes is just trading with them um, and, and not trying to regulate them, um, then they have the opportunity to then, again, sort of hit this point in their society where they can afford to, to be more conscientious and they can afford to um, actually clean up some of this stuff that right now is not um, a, a big issue for them because they're just trying to live. So um, it goes really important. I think it is. So prosperity deals with the one end because then they'll bring in recycling programs and maybe bring in bottle deposits. So they have developed a, a, a bottled recycling type of approach. But that got me thinking too, that maybe that's the solution is that if somebody put a price, so we'll go back to market mechanisms, a price on going out to sea and harvesting up some of that garbage and turning it in somewhere so that you could get money back. Maybe that would create the kind of incentive. But it, it, what I'm finding as we're having this conversation is that you're quite right. All roads do lead back to property rights and lead back 
to free enterprise mechanisms. Yeah. Come back to your idea right there. I don't think we need to say, you know, somebody's going to pay for this. If I'm guessing, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just guessing that there are people out there in the world that are saying, how do I make money off of that? How do I clean that up and actually make money from it? And that is what we call an envirepreneur. It's an environmental mm -hmm. entrepreneur. It's somebody that says, here's, here's, a, here's an environmental problem, and I want to help fix that problem. And to do that, I'm going to try to come up with a way to generate revenue. So I am doing good for the environment, and I'm doing well for myself also. And, and that's the type of solution that the free market environmentalist is really looking for, um, is saying that, that we have these really innovative people out there. Um, let them go to it and do some of this work. And, and I mean, you, you bring up the idea of recycling and some recycling is great, right? And, and the recycling that's great is the recycling that we see that people are actually taking these resources and putting them back to use and reusing them in another way, right? I mean, the, um, the, the, the pop can is the, you know, the poster child of recycling because we can take that aluminum and we can rework that aluminum and it's actually less costly than, than digging up bauxite and, and starting from scratch, right? That's not always true though. You know, I live in Bozeman, Montana and we have a lot of plastics around here and we have a lot of glass you know just like anybody anybody else in a developed country we, we we have a lot of this type of waste well it costs more to take that glass and and ship it down to golden colorado which is where it tends to go mm -hmm. from from bozeman um to to make new glass from it's and it's it's more you know economically costly and it's more ecologically costly so sometimes when we have these environmental um programs that say recycle 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 you think well, maybe not, you know, I've got this landfill out here. Um, and actually I covered that stuff up and it has, you know, now I have a lovely park on top of it. Um, and quite frankly, that is maybe the best way right now, given our current technologies to deal with some of that trash that we have. Um, but the fact that in the US we actually have these waste sites that are impermeable based and, you know, we can cover them all up and they're not, you know, emitting gases and, um, and, and emitting leach, you know, leaching water down into our, um, you know, water tables and that kind of stuff is really important. And that doesn't exist across the globe, right? I, I do want to talk to you more about that because I think you've probably challenged what a lot of people think is the optimal solution. I wanted to say two things. You've maybe less worried about space junk because with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson all fighting to get into space, someone is going to find a way to monetize gobbling up all of the excess junk that's out there. So that's good to know. But on the issue of, of landfills, I think people viscerally feel like we shouldn't just be burying this stuff that and we fell into this in Canada I don't know if you saw some of the black eyes that we got we were telling people recycle and then packaging it all up with a bunch of garbage as well shipping it off to China and Malaysia and the Philippines and then it was sitting there rotting on their on their ports and finally they turned around and said we're not taking it anymore and they even shipped it back to us so some of it it's clearly fiction, the, uh, the the recycling that we're doing. We're doing it because we think that's the best option. And yet we're contributing to a, we're trying to push the problem elsewhere. But I think it goes to this idea that we're just generating so much stuff and we sh should find some more useful purpose to it. But we shouldn't just be digging a hole and burying it underground. And, and maybe I just need you to explore a little bit more about why land why landfilling could be the more optimal solution, because I think that that really does challenge what, what people think we ought to be doing, that we, sh we shouldn't be creating that kind of disruption. 
right? When you, when you think of a landfill, most of the time we think of a landfill and it's sort of a NIMBY policy, right? It's a not in my backyard policy. I don't want the landfill in my backyard. Um, and, and as long as it's not there, I, I, I don't really have to think all that much about it. But like you're saying, people are starting to think about that. What is what is it that we're bearing? And I don't have the actual numbers anymore, but at, at Perk, we actually did, uh, Dan Benjamin wrote a great piece on, on recycling and he actually had estimated exactly how much space landfill space we need for the next 20 years um, or the next 100 years to put all the garbage from everybody in the United States in um, and, and just be able to move forward. And it's it's not all that much, right? Hmm. So if we actually think about landfill space and we think about what we're doing there, it's a pretty low cost way to take our garbage and tuck it away and not have additional environmental harm done by it, right? And, and again, that's a, that's a U.S. thing. That's not true 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we put our landfills in wetlands. Right. And they would leach down into the waterways and they created horrible pollution problems. So I'm not saying that this has always been perfect for, by any means. Again, as we became more prosperous and started to understand the problems that that was causing, we started to fix those problems. Um, and again, somebody was liable for for that water that was polluting somebody else. And so over time, we were able to fix that. You know, not a short term solution, not a perfect solution, but eventually we got there. So we have these landfills now. And if we decide that there's something in that landfill, you know, 50 years down the road, that's really valuable, we can go dig it up. Hmm. But, but right now, being able to say we have this, you know, we have all this various stuff, this garbage, we're going to separate it out. And what are we going to do with it? We're going to store it. I mean, what's China doing with it? What's Malaysia doing with, with it? These countries that we've sent so much of our garbage to and they're separating it out and piecing it out. And some of that's valuable and some of that's not valuable. Recycling is great when you have a, 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 a resource that actually can be turned into another resource. Right. Um, recycling is not great when you have garbage that doesn't have any value at the end mm -hmm. of the day. So we should be putting garbage in the trash and taking it to our landfill and maybe someday it will have a value to us and then we can go dig it out. But right now when we try to recycle everything, it's costing us more and oftentimes it's more environmentally damaging. It's right? so, it's so, I like your argument because I was about to say, well, but we could incinerate it. But now you've just made an argument for why you might want to look at a landfill as sort of a temporary holding area for something that might have future value. But incineration is, one of the options that they use in places where they don't have land. I think Singapore is probably at the, at the cutting at the cutting edge of this. But the reason we have these conversations is because that is one of those services that we've decided we want government to manage on our behalf because virtually all municipalities, there's some exceptions, of course, but virtually all municipalities have created a government program that's a government monopoly for how garbage is managed and so it becomes a political economy issue we have to have a political discussion about what it is that we're, we're going to do to manage it is there a way to have a truly private free enterprise system that would deal with garbage i think i'd worry that people would just you know chuck it into the ditches or try to find some other way of dumping it to avoid the cost i think that's part of the reason why we've decided we collectively want to take care of this problem and make it easy so that we can't have free riders on the system or people who will avoid it. Have you given some thought to that? Is that one of those areas where government should be running that service? You know, I think there's there's potentially other ways to do it, but let's come back to the property rights. And and, and if you can't make people liable, then then the market may not totally solve its, the problem for mm. us, right? So if you have people that are, that are uh, you know, littering all over the place or dumping their garbage somewhere else and we really can't enforce 
that and, and stop them from doing that, then there may be a reason that we want some sort of governance in there to help us you know, address those issues. We don't want garbage all over the place. We do want to make sure that it's picked up properly and that it's taken care of because it causes additional problems, right? If we, you know, if you go think about New York City when we have, you know, garbage strikes or something like that, and it's kind of a horrifying vision for me. I don't know, you know, people talk about the rats and everything else, like, oh my gosh, that is not something I want to be a part of. Um, so for, for sure, there are times and places where we might want some governance to help us do some of these things. And when we have what we call externalities, um, then if we can't create clear property rights on that, then we might want to actually have some some governance help. And so uh, thinking about externalities, we're talking about spillovers. We're talking about those actions where somebody is doing something and they're impacting a third party, right? And the third party has no way to say, yes, I want that or no, I don't want that. And that might be somebody littering or dumping their garbage out on the freeways or something of that sort. So by making garbage collection less expensive, it, it, it lowers the cost of some of those, you know, external costs that we get when people are actually just dumping in inappropriate places. Um, so you know, could you imagine a, a private sector doing that? Sure. We could have, you know, some private entities that are out there picking up that garbage and, and doing some of that stuff. And as we become um, better at recycling and have better technologies that help us, you know, create new products from our from our waste, what we would consider waste now, you're really going to see people starting to, to pick that up. And, you know, that just sort of reminds me going back to talking about these developing countries and you look at their waste sites, you know what people do and how they recycle in many of those countries and historically have recycled um, even here is you throw everything in the waste site and then people go pick out the things that are valuable, mm -hmm. right? And you actually have people that make the living based on going out to their landfill and picking out the pieces that are, that, that actually have value and selling them. Um, so we actually see that sort of, you know, entrepreneurial activity going on already and have for hundreds of years um, in that sense. But does it solve all the problems? No, it doesn't solve all the problems. And, and, and there are places where we have externalities that, that are beyond what we're willing to put up with. And then we might want to see some additional governance to help us take care of those problems. Well, and it goes back again to the earlier point you were making. As you have more prosperity, you'll have fewer people who want to do that kind of filthy work. And therefore, they'll look for more collective solutions like we have here. Tell me the language I should be using. What is the terminology that you use? Because I, I, I think I was being overly broad when I talked about common ownership tragedy of the commons. You, you had a, you, you had a way of saying that the government uh, authority over certain types of lands or certain types of resources, it's still, it's still private. So, so tell me the language we should be using to be talking about this sort of next stage of our discussion when governments own grazing lease land and parks mm -hmm. and forestry. Mm -hmm. What, how, what is that ownership? I, I would just call them that they're government owned. I mean, when people say that they're not owned, um, that's that's just not true, right? They, government owns them, and government is is defining how they're going to be managed. And you know, then we have our private property that you and I would think about as our own homes, our you know, our cars, um, you know, those assets and things that we actually own as individuals. And then we have sort of that that common property, and you can even take that a little bit further. You can say, well, we have common property that that maybe um, are uh, we have tribal properties that are common, owned in common by those tribes, and the tribe actually has a managed program for those properties. We have lots of common properties across the across the globe in different areas where you have different communities that own the property. And if they, they, should, they, they oftentimes have a management you know, program for that, where they're actually working together to manage that. And if you go um, back to Eleanor Ostrom, who is a Nobel laureate, uh, she, she did a lot of research looking at different types of um, communities across the globe that didn't have 
private rights, right? But she was wondering, they didn't have private rights. Why didn't they see the tragedy of the commons? And it was because they didn't have open access. What they had was they had mm. um, they had community-owned rights, and they actually had a management plan within that community, even if it was informal, right? It didn't have to be written down. It might be even an informal as to how these people get along and work together. But then we have these open access areas where we see this tragedy of the commons that we were talking about with the fisheries, right? When you go out into the um, in, into you know international waters, we don't have very good treaties out there to determine who can fish there and who can't fish there, and and we can't exclude anybody. Even if we have a treaty, we've realized that it's really hard to exclude certain groups if they decide that they want to actually fish, you know, for go whaling or whatever it might be. Um, and that's where we really see the tragedy of the commons because we have that open access. So let's then walk through your your deal acronym thinking of it from a commonly owned property or government owned property property, just so I can see how it replicates the world of private right. property. Cause I, cause I think that's important for us to set the framework and then we can see where things are going wrong and some of that management. So, so we had double D deal. So tell us how that works when we're talking about government, government owned property. Okay. With, with, with government owned property, it, it is, you know, it's defined. The government has defined what it is, at least if we think about Canadian, you know, government properties and U.S. government properties. Um, it's defendable. They know it is. Nobody's going to be squatting on that on that landscape, um, so to speak. Um, is it excludable? And that depends upon the um, the laws and regulations for that piece of property. Um, and if we think about uh, recreation, oftentimes we don't exclude anybody for recreation, right? You're mm -hmm. able to go out and recreate. And then suddenly what we find here in the United States on really popular areas is we're having to try to come up with some sort of a lottery or something to to exclude people, right? Because it's becoming too popular and it's becoming overused. Yeah. It's the tragedy of the commons. So um, we have a river here in, in Montana. It's called the Smith River. It's a, a I think it's a 30 mile float. It's absolutely beautiful. Everybody wants to do it. You know, 20 years ago I did it and there were a lot of people on it, but we didn't, you know, you didn't have to have a permit. Now you have to have a permit and you have to put in for the permit and it's randomly drawn lottery um, because it just got too many people and there just wasn't enough, um, there, you know, there wasn't weren't enough campsites uh, to take care of everybody that was trying to float down there. So we've changed that what was an open access to sort of a restricted access and we've excluded some people, which is important. Um, is it, uh, actually, I'm going to skip the A for a moment and I'm going to go to the L because coming back to the A is I think where we're going to focus here. Um, are, is government liable for damage done on their property? Um, and again, that um, I would say that that depends if, if you know, you have some um, minerals activity or something going on there. The government may have done a good job creating a contract so that the lessee is liable or they may not have. Right. But that's another really key component that we need to think about that, again, depends upon the um, the regulations and the governance that's gone along with the contracts as to how those lands are used. The appropriability part is really interesting because government government land is not appropriable. It's not sellable, right? I mean, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, you can't sell it. You can't trade it, um, but you can lease it. And so we see that we have a lot of our government lands, a lot of our public lands that are actually leased for grazing, um, for, for minerals rights, for oil and gas development, um, you know, that type of use. And they can lease those lands. And in the United States, when they lease those lands, they're pretty much restricted to lease it very specifically for that use. So if the government puts out an oil and gas, um, a bid for oil and gas, and somebody wants to lease that particular uh, 
use, then we can actually have a competitive bid. But let's just say I bid on that because I didn't want the oil and gas to be pulled out of the ground. And I win that bid. I have to, by law, pull the oil and gas out of the ground. I cannot leave it there. So if a conservation organization wants to see that not developed for oil and gas, the only ability they have to do that is to lobby government. They have to fight government and say, no, we don't want this to happen instead of actually allowing this bargain or negotiation process, um, because whoever wins that bid is absolutely required to remove that oil and gas or remove that mineral, whatever it may be. You've you've really touched on something that I think gets at these conflicting uses of public land as well, because we we seem like we've got all of these interests now because of how you described it, that once you win the lease, all bets are off. So you've got those who win the grazing lease, you'll have hunters come along saying, well, I should be able to have access to that and create some conflict there. You've got sort of the ATV drivers as well. They want to be able to go out onto the old timber roads. Well, that's already under somebody else's lease rights. You've got uh, timber companies as well that don't want to have the oil and gas development or um, or, or mineral development. And yet it, it seems to me there should be ways to be a little bit more precise when you're talking about such huge, huge landscapes that maybe there should be a better way of making sure that the recreational users are able to get what they want, as well as the timber, as well as the oil and grass, as well as the mineral, as well as the environmentalist. I think in this stage, we'd because there's so much activism against some of those extractive industries, I think there'd be some fear that some super billionaire or billionaire foundation funds would come and buy up all of the resource value of a country and landlock it. We're, we're sort of experiencing a little bit of that problem in my home province of Alberta. So I, I want to understand how that might work so that you can alleviate some of those fears for me that, that we would end up just uh, making this choice to just build a fence around everything and then nothing would get developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a it's a great it's a great question. I think there's you know two different ways to look at this, and I'm going to address one, and we can address the other if you want. One is saying, um, you know, we could actually, in some sense, sell off the public lands and and um, put them into private hands. I don't think that's where you're going. There's some interesting academic exercises and thinking about that, but I'm going to set that one aside because I want to think about these and I'll, are and I'll agree with I'll agree with you on that one because I think when you talk about what's possible politically, the idea that you would take the vast amount of public lands that we have and sell them off privately, I just think it would be a political non-starter. So it might be good at an interesting economic uh, sort of academic exercise, but I take your point. Yes. We can take that one off the table. Point two though. Yeah, yeah. So so let's think so so these are public lands that they're government-owned lands. We want to keep them that way. How can we actually think about the trade-offs a little bit more? I think one of the really important things that people need to realize is that there are trade-offs. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. And, and for anybody that's read um, Thomas Sowell and his constrained versus unconstrained vision, his unconstrained vision is sort of this idea that any, people can do anything and everything. We just have to get people to behave properly. Um, and the constrained version, and, you know, forgive me if I'm sort of, you know, simplifying this very much, um, but the constrained version is a little bit more well, there are trade-offs that exist out there. We can't do everything and anything, and, and, and humans behave according to the incentives that they are given. And so, it is really these institutions and, and these, you know, these property rights and these um, the rule of law and all those things that are driving our behavior. So, what sort of institution can we set up for our government lands that's going to allow us to realize what some of these trade-offs are? And right now, um, in the United States and in, in Canada, it's, it's similar, but there, there are definitely some differences. Um, we have these these public lands, you know, and 
I'm just going to think of the ones that we really have multiple use access to right now. So people can go recreate on, on the majority of those lands, but they, they, you know, some of that recreation is, is limited. Maybe it's just hiking and, um, and horseback riding, or maybe you allow bikes, or maybe you allow the ATVs and the off-road vehicles, but um, there's certainly places for, for all of that. Um, but then we have the, the grazing leases that exist. We have, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to, to harvest timber um, and bid on that, and the opportunity to remove minerals, oil, and gas, and that type of thing. If you are part of one of those extractive industries, setting recreation aside, and you're leasing for grazing, you have to, again, like I was talking about with the oil and gas, you have to graze those lands. Then you have, you know, you have a certain number of um, animals that you can put on that landscape for a certain period of time. And you don't really get the option to decide, well, I actually want to do some holistic grazing. So I'm going to put more animals on for a certain period of time, but I'm going to pull them off and, you know, quicker. And some of these innovative ideas that we've learned over time that might be actually better grazing management that might lead to much better outcomes on the landscape and actually increase, you know, the water tables and everything else and the habitat for other species. But our laws right now are set such that you just have to abide by this. And so it makes it really difficult to manage it for some of these other uses. Now imagine that you have, um, you know, one of our conservation organizations come in and say, you know, you guys are on a really key piece of land for, um, for a certain type of bird. And we really want you to just sort of set this aside during the, the month of March when the birds are coming in and they're nesting in this area. Um, it would make sense in my mind at least to be able to approach the rancher or the person that owns the lease and say look can we compensate you a little bit or make a deal with you to not put your animals out but put the cattle out during March because there's some huge benefits that, that come. Now, maybe somebody can have a verbal contract there um, and would be willing to do that. But according to the, you know, the, the government lease there, you're not allowed to sublet for it, right? They couldn't actually accept money for not birding or not putting the cattle during that, that uh, nesting period. But why not? right? Why shouldn't we allow for these trades to take place if that's really what the best outcome might be? And people are willing to say, you know, I, I don't really want to see oil and gas development on that particular piece of land. Um, so actually, I have a group that's going to pay um, to not have oil and gas development. Or maybe I don't want to see timber harvest in a certain area. I'm actually willing to pay to not do that. Now, Timber harvest becomes a little more tricky again because we have, you know, we, we know that we have to do some sort of harvesting in order to maintain um, some level of, of risk for wildfire in many of our forests. And so you'd have to create these contracts very carefully. But actually, here in Bozeman, we had a group um, that th there's a group of homes that live up on the hillside, and there are state lands that are adjacent to that. And the state wanted to harvest timber up there. It's a rotational harvest that they do. And the group said, We don't want you to harvest up there. We have this wildlife up here it's, it's our view shed we really don't want you to harvest and because it was state land instead of federal land they were actually able to um, bid to leave the timber standing for 25 years and they won that bid which is super cool right so now that that timber is standing for 25 years part of the contract was you know if there was fire risk and other things that they you know risks that they needed to get in and address some timber harvest they were allowed the state's allowed to get in there and do that um, but basically this group won the bid to leave the timber standing for 25 years. Um, unfortunately, right after that, our state law changed. And so we're not allowed to have what, what, what we oftentimes call a conservation lease. And that is, we just want to bid to conserve this land in one way, shape or form. And we're willing to, to have a competitive bid on it. Um, but it seems to me to make a lot of sense to allow for that type of trading 
because it just allows the marketplace to to work and for us to see what really is the the most socially efficient outcome that people are looking for and if we don't allow trade then it's that one group that says i want to do this or the government that says it's for grazing that's going to win at the cost of everybody else and then it becomes a political debate instead of a market debate interesting because it is a political debate right now and i'll argue it two ways and they're totally in conflict with each other one group might say well if it just goes to the highest bidder then clearly because ore and rare earth minerals and oil and gas are so valuable you will end up seeing extractive development everywhere and you won't protect anything you could on the other hand say because you've got all of these now billionaire foundations that are able to support environmental groups, they're going to buy everything and no one's going to be able to develop anything anywhere. What, what do you think that, where do you think the truth lies on that? Because I think what has ended up happening then is in, in my home province, the mineral rights are owned by the crown. So they have an interest in making sure they're developed because they get a very large royalty when they're developed, which goes to pay for schools and hospitals. And so they don't want to see their resources landlocked. But I guess I'm wondering how instead of so they, they create an environment where they create tiering of rights, that if you have mineral light rights, then your right takes precedence over the person who owns the surface. And so you can't say no if somebody wants to come onto your property to develop that resource. Is that I, I want to understand sort of like what the, the thinking around that, if there's some good economic thinking around having government decide whose rights take paramounts over the other, or if there's another way that that could be negotiated. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, if you have clear rights, then the marketplace will sort of take care of that, right? Like if the if the government owns it and the government says, you know, we want the extraction because we're actually generating revenues from that. Well, I'm the conservation organization that says, you know, that is a really critical area, you know, for elk migration. And I am willing to pay for not, you know, destroying that with development, but actually allowing this elk migration to take place. Mm -hmm. Then the government is is just as well off, but presumably even better off, because I have to win that bid, right? I have to pay more in order mm -hmm. to allow for that migration pathway to take place instead of the development. So in in that way, the government is is still left whole, right? It's not um, what's happening right now is that we have these lobbying groups that are saying, no, you can't do that. This is this is a protected area. We want to keep it protected, and then the government loses its resources if it decides that it's not going to develop it for the conservation, right? So it doesn't get any payment at the end of the day. And we know that there are conservation organizations and, and, and um, wealthy individuals that are willing to pay for, for some of this stuff, mm -hmm. right? But part of this too is thinking about, well, it may not be just the whole chunk of land, right? If I have mm -hmm. a, a grazing lease and I, let's just say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leasing, I don't know, 500 acres and there's a little stream on one side that covers a couple of acres that, um, that one conservation organization is super interested in, we should be able to negotiate for that little piece, which is the valuable piece to allow it for, um, you know, like we were talking about earlier for the, for the bird rookery that it may be, or maybe for a fishery or something of that sort, um, and still allow for this other type of action to take place. Uh, because what it comes down to is we have to make trade-offs and it's not mm -hmm. a, um, it's, it, it's, it's not a sort of a all or nothing deal, right? It's, would, it's, would, a, it's a negotiation. Would you contend then that part of the reason why, we have such stridency in saying, no, it's all or nothing. We've got to stop extraction. We can't touch this area at all. It all needs to be protected, build around it or build a fence around it is because we don't have the ability 
to have this nuance where you can identify a particular area that really is important that you're willing to put money on the line. And if you were to create the kind of market that you're talking about, where even conservation groups would be able to participate, they wouldn't have the money to be able to freeze up everything. And so right. they would consolidate and they would identify the things that were absolutely the most crucial habitat. And so we'd end up with better protection as a result. Would that be your hypothesis? Uh, yep, I would say that. And I'm going to take it even a step further and go towards the, the idea of, of ownership on some of these parcels now. So let's imagine that we have a, a you know a conservation group that's super interested in, in an area. And I could name a few, but I'm not going to. Um, th that there's this, you know, let's just say there's a this million acre landscape that just has immensely valuable um, habitat and environmental concerns, but it also has some oil and gas on it um, mm -hmm. or some minerals that people really want to develop. And, it, you know, if, as long as it's government owned, we're going to have this this conflicting battle where the developers and the um, and the conservation groups are going to go back and forth with Congress and politicians and say, what can we do? And it sort of becomes this, this you know, uh, winner takes all solution or sort of, you know, one size fits all type, often type solutions um, that are the result of that. Well, instead, let's say let's say that the conservation group owns that land, and they have to manage it, but they have to pay for management. Hmm. So the government paying for management. Are they going to say nope? We're not allowing anybody to do anything on this land. Maybe if they can generate revenues, you know, from somewhere else, or maybe from recreation, if that's really the highest valued use of it. Or maybe they're going to say, "Gosh, this is really expensive to manage," and I now realize that because I now own it. Right. And, you know, this little piece over here, if I allow oil and gas development on that, I can pay for the whole thing and maybe even buy the neighboring property. That's huh. really crucial. Right. So part of the idea when we have government ownership of things um, is is that it, it, it excludes people from understanding the trade-offs that actually exist. And we go through this political process to fight over the different uses of the landscape instead of a bargaining process. It's a little bit more cooperative. Um, and you know, some people are really unhappy with that because right now conservation groups are oftentimes getting exactly what they want because they are very influential in lobbying. Um, you know, if you go back in time, you know, Oftentimes, uh, if, if we go back to the 1980s in the United States, 1960s and 70s in the United States, timber industry was pretty powerful in being mm -hmm. able to harvest timber on, on our national forest lands and, and maybe a little bit too much, right, in some places. We didn't do great timber harvesting there. We, we really um, raided some of those landscapes in a way that they will never return to what they were. Um, so that influence changes over time. And if we really had more of this uh, ownership, if you will, in different ways, we would see some of those trade-offs and people would understand in, in economics what we call the opportunity cost. What are the alternative uses of that landscape? And how do we get people to understand the alternative uses of that landscape? And that brings us right back to the deal of property rights and that appropriability. If you can't trade it and sell it, then you oftentimes don't really understand the true value of that resource because you only understand your value of the resource and not how anybody else values it. Walk me through the L for a minute, because I think that the liability aspect is one that has also left people frustrated about government ownership and the lobbying interests that we've had historically that have been able to shield companies from liability. And I think that there are, there are toxic uh, waste sites. I think the Superfund is the fund in the United States that identified them to clean them up. We've got abandoned well issues in, um, in our home province. We've seen uh, mining operations where you end up with selenium or other types of, of waste getting into the, into the water. And so I think people have now said, well, since 
these large extractive industries have created environmental damage and not cleaned it up. Ergo, let's stop the extraction. That's sort of, I think, the linear thinking that takes place. Since government can't hold them to account, let's not allow them to extract in the first place. Should there, so, so talk to me a bit about this liability issue, because I wonder if that is a failure on the part of government ownership for a couple of reasons, for the political economy reasons that you're talking about, people need to get reelected. And so you go to the big, the you know, the big source of fund is, funds for that. And sometimes it's those very same companies that we're talking about. Is right. that one of the problems? Um, why, how do we deal with that live? Or is it that we don't have the continuity that politicians who made the decisions 40 years ago didn't know the kind of consequences and environmental issues that we'd be dealing with today. And so because you don't have that continuity and foresight of ownership, who's to blame? Who should take the responsibility for it? And everybody's left pointing fingers at each other. How can you solve that problem of liability on government-owned land? Right. I, you know, I, I think if we go back in time and we look at that problem of liability, we can go back to the common law. And, you know, the common law actually does enforce people's rights. And, and, and if you go back into the late 1800s, the early 1900s in the United States, we actually had court cases of industry at that time polluting a small farmer downstream and the farmer winning because, because we do have the rights to clean water and clean air. Um, and as a result of, of, of that suit, then other industries started to realize, oh, we can't actually pollute on people. And therefore, um, we need to be careful because it's really expensive to go through a court case like that, right? And mm -hmm. then to lose it. Um, and so the common law helped protect that. Was it perfect? No, because there are sometimes people that can't afford to, to go to court over it. And so they might lose at the end of the day. You might be polluted on by something that's, that causes cancer and you die of cancer before you even know it, right? So, so I'm, I, I don't want people to, to think that I'm saying this is a perfect solution, but this is historically how we looked at, at, at our um, enforcing our, our rights or that liability component um, with regards to, to water quality and air quality. And what we actually saw is both our water quality and air quality getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner far before the Clean Air Act and far before the Clean Water Act. Um, did those help? Sure, they, they brought it to people's attention that this was really important. Um, now we had some sort of uh, limits that we were allowed to pollute up to. Um, and then along in the US came um, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And the EPA came out and said, okay, here are the um, the limits, right? So, so instead of saying somebody can take you to court if you've been harmed um, or, or if you're harming somebody, um, you can actually pollute this amount. And sometimes that amount was too much. Sometimes that mm -hmm. amount was was still allowed harm to be done, which might actually be fine as long as those people can still go to court and say, no, that was too much, right? But what the EPA did um, was it, it essentially trumps these the right to, to take somebody to court over the common law. Um, and so, and I think my understanding is a little bit of that is changing now, um, but certainly we had these, um, you know, we had sort of this, you know, platform then that said, nope, this is how much you're allowed to pollute. And it doesn't really matter if that's too much or not enough. Um, whatever, once the EPA sets that standard, which is totally, you know, politically set, right? We have all this lobbying that's yep. one to get to, to create that. Um, then that guy that, or gal that gets harmed may not have any repercussion to go back and, and protect their rights. So I think the same thing sort of happens on our, on our public lands. And that is, you know, when we're when we're allowing people to develop minerals or to pull on gas or to graze the lands or whatever it might be, we need to ensure that part of that contract is that they are liable. And I know we've mm -hmm. had bonding and other things to to make sure that's true, but historically speaking, we didn't enforce that, right? And so a lot of the abandoned mines and other things are pre 
you know, sort of before we had an understanding of exactly how much damage was being done and before we required that uh, to be cleaned up. And as a result of that, it, it was, you know, it was part of our growth in our economies in that we didn't know that that much harm was going to be done. And we really needed those minerals. And had we not developed some of those minerals, we probably wouldn't be the prosperous place that we are right now. So there are trade-offs that exist. And those trade-offs over time, we start to understand them a little more as we have more knowledge and more wealth to be able to take care of some of these issues that we may not have previously really been willing to address. You, you, you address something really important about harm because I'm going from memory now from when I used to, uh, to follow uh, Perk, Perk very closely back when I was doing environmental writing. But I thought that one of the measures the EPA came up with was that you had to be able to eat 10 teaspoons of the soil and not have certain contaminants be such at such a level that it would cause you cancer. And you're thinking, okay, well, how many people is going to sit and eat 10 teaspoons of of soil, but I think that's the nature of the problem that we have now is that whether it's the precautionary principle or what it is, is that we've come to this idea that zero is the answer mm -hmm. and we've set utopia as the answer. And if you're going to set zero as the answer, you're actually impairing the, the will and the interest in people in cleaning up the environment. Because I think what happens now is that it's just easier to pay a landowner for continued access uh, to that well site, because if you start cleaning it up, you may find out that you never can stop because there's not, it's never going to be clean enough. And I wonder how we can change our thinking around that, around what is clean enough? What is the trade-off? How clean is clean? Do you, do you have some, some thoughts on that? Cause I think we used to have a better balance and I don't know that we have that balance today. And I think it's actually impairing our investment in returning environment to, to a pristine state or relatively pristine, pristine state. So you need to look at my own language, right? I'm using the same language that pristine is the goal, but, but maybe it isn't. So help me, help me with my thinking on that. Right, right. I mean, it, it's super interesting to look at sort of Superfund here in the United States, which, you know, sort of claims these areas and said these are extremely polluted areas and you have to clean them up. And anybody that had any rights to this land anywhere in the past is is liable and responsible. And so it becomes this big um, legal battle with all the people that were involved. And it may or may not have been, you know, maybe it was one uh, group that had um produce something on that landscape when we didn't even know it was harming the land. And then somebody else bought it from them um, and was doing something entirely different. And then somebody else bought it from them and was doing something different yet, but then realized that there was pollution on this land. And Superfund came in and said, um, oh my gosh, or your government came in and said, oh my gosh, this is polluted land. And now you're responsible. And the previous owner is responsible. And the previous owner is responsible. And so it becomes this legal battle between all these different owners. Who's going to pay for this? And then, like you say, the, the EPA comes in and says, yes, and it has to be 99.9% .9 clean, right? You know, that's ridiculous. What is the, the cost of that last, you know, 10% clean and what is the benefit of it, right? So again, thinking, you know, that what is the additional amount clean and the additional benefit? And we need to balance that um, better for sure. Um, and and does it is it really the EPA that should be coming in and doing this? But I don't know exactly what the best solution is to, to balance that, but what's happened because of Superfund and because of some of these laws and regulations is that nobody wants to touch this stuff. Yep. So it's not going to get clean. Right. So we have what we call brown sites sometimes. Right. And, and that is that, that, that it's polluted and nobody wants to be anywhere near it. You know, what if we could provide some, you know, some leeway on that and say, if you go in there and clean it up, even a little bit, you take the, the responsibility to clean that up a little bit and you're going to do something with that land. We're better than we are right now. Hmm. Right. 
So there are steps that we can think about taking. So, so and you also have you know different conservation organizations. You have Trout Unlimited that's really worried about the water, for example. And then maybe you have a, um, a mining company that's interested in getting in there and, and pulling a little bit more of the minerals out of that um, out of that old waste site, that old mine site, but they're afraid to touch it and try to limit what's the water. What if you start putting some of these groups together and allowing them to negotiate a little bit, um, but not making anybody that touches that land 100% liable um, because they didn't do it, right? The original, you know, if we look at that deal of property rights that I was talking about, it's the original polluter. We want them to be the ones that pay. But if you go back in history, that makes no sense because we didn't even know they were polluting back then. Right. So it doesn't really make sense to do it that way. So how do we readdress that? And maybe it's just by lightening up some of those laws so that we can actually get some of this stuff redeveloped and make sure it's safe, um, but not forcing them to clean it up 100 percent and not saying you are liable because they're not the ones that did it in the first place. Wow, that's um, brilliant. OK, let me then take that same principle, because I think that also then applies to non-extractive uses of the land. And it's this idea that any disruption from what was the natural condition is somehow a deterioration. And I firmly don't believe that with timber. And I firmly don't believe that with grazing. And maybe you'll, you'll have me think differently by the end of it. But I'll tell you my starting point anyway. Um, it's funny, I thought we were going to speak about nothing but forestry when we started talking, and we will get there eventually, because I know that's such a, an area of your expertise. But let's deal with grazing first, because I want to end up on dealing with timber. So you could take the view, and, and there have been battles in the past between environmentalists and ranchers. And I think we're still seeing it now, because some of the environmentalists, because of belching cows, they're worried about methane emissions. But my goodness, if you take that cattle off a lot of these landscapes, you're going to end up with deterioration in the condition of those landscapes because the cattle and the management helps to manage the water, helps to manage the habitat, the biodiversity. You can do measures of how many other animals are on that on those landscapes. It, the, the fescue helps to capture CO2 in the soil, improve soil quality. And so I, I feel like sometimes the issue of should that land be grazed and environmentalist groups opposing it, sometimes if you, if you were to, the alternative would actually lead to a, a worse outcome. And I'm just wanting to see if, I, if I'm thinking about that the, the right way, because I, 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 I really do feel like sometimes our, our, our cattlemen and women are, are, are really under attack. I, I would agree 100%. And there are certainly places where maybe we shouldn't have cattle. But there are a lot of places where cattle are actually managing the landscape for us. And go back, go back in history, uh, pre pre ranches, pre cattle on the landscape. What was out there? And if you're looking at the American West, it was bison, right? It was it was the American buffalo, and they and and all the other wildlife were the ones that were sort of maintaining our landscape landscape and sustaining um, the the savannas and the the forest and everything else by the way that they roamed the landscape and by the way that they moved with you know within the forest and then of course you know sort of that that um, ecological circle of, of of how they they dealt with each other so as as we came in as, as people came in and started putting cattle on the landscape, et cetera. I think at first, oftentimes, and, and um, I'm sure this is not always, but oftentimes we just, you know, we put the cattle in the landscape. Um, we didn't have great ways to fence them in. Eventually we learned how to fence them in. I mean, we can go in all kinds of property rights story there, but we'll just sort of bypass all that and come to present day and go, oh, and guess what we've realized? If we just leave a bunch of cattle out there on the landscape for a long period of time, we have too many of them, we might destroy the forage. But if we 
do what people are calling holistic management. And that is we're, we're taking a, you know, a, a large population of, of, um, of livestock and we're moving them very rapidly across the landscape. So they sort of imitate what the wildlife historically did. Then we're actually seeing that we're getting better forage. And as we get better forage, we're actually seeing that we're also sustaining our water tables in a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're creating better habitat for the wildlife that historically were there that, that hopefully are still there and hopefully are coming back when they, you know, when we've sort of decimated them at one point in time. And I think that is really important. And from, you know, I'm not a rancher, I'm not a soil manager or anything else, but from all the work that I've done thinking about public lands and public land management, that is one of the issues that's become really critical is how we manage those landscapes and how we manage those grazing rights. Because right now, like we previously talked, we're really restricting how the the rancher can graze cattle on that lease. And what we've learned is that there's a better way to do it. And we need to change some of those policies in order to allow that type of management to take place because we're actually seeing some really good results from that more holistic type management. And I'm sure there's other types of management that exist out there um, as well. But when we actually sort of fence out the cattle, we find that we're not getting the wildlife and we're not getting the forage back. And in fact, a number of wealthy ranchers have come out to my neck of the woods in Montana and said, we, we just want the wildlife. They've removed all the fences. They've removed all the cattle. They got wildlife for a year. And then suddenly they realized that there were these, you know, noxious weeds that were coming in and there wasn't very much forage left um, because forage actually needs to be eaten to grow. It's kind of like hair, right? This thing that we don't really think about until somebody tells us, and we may not even believe it until we actually sort of study it ourselves. And that is that in order for the forage to grow well, it needs to be eaten because the tall grasses, if they're not eaten, they get pushed down in the in the snow and the rain and the wind, and they sort of block out um, the the sunshine for the new grasses to grow. And it's the um, the animals, the livestock, the the wildlife that come in and actually eat that that sort of revigorate that growth. But you don't want to take it all at one time too much. You know, again, the the way nature had it before we brought our cattle in seemed to work really well. And we're learning how to mimic that. And that's been very effective. Exactly. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you, you're talking um, about all of those environmental positive aspects, because I'll add just that one more uh, as we're discovering more and more about soils. And I, I've, I've read some of Alan Savory's work, and I do know a rancher who believed in that style of intensive grazing, and it was quite amazing, quite an experience for me. But that's the other part, too, is that it just creates a root system that grows more deeply, and then more microbes in the soil that can eat up all that CO2 that's coming down and, and fix the CO2 in the soil. And so I think that there's a, a really good balance. And I hope I hope we're beginning to understand that a little bit more, although I fear perhaps we're not. But if you were to allow for subletting on grazing lease land, what kind of innovations do you think would occur? Because I think the worry that uh, that ranchers have is because there's been hostility in the past, is, oh my gosh, I don't want anyone on my property to see that I have endangered species because then they're going to make me build a fence around it. Uh, I don't want anybody to see that I've got wetlands because then I'm not going to be able to manage my dugouts and my, and my cattle the way I normally would. So we've created this, what should actually be working in partnership together, which is those who want to manage landscapes for cattle also succeed in managing landscapes for all of the other wonderful creatures that we want to have there. We actually have them in conflict. How do you remove that conflict? How do you remove that fear that ranchers think that my property rights and my ability to have dominion over this landscape is going to be impaired if I allow anybody to come into partnership? Right. Well, first of all, I think, you know, as long as 
we're going back to private land, then, you know, you can actually allow for that subletting on your own. You can actually have um, conservation groups come say, you know, we're interested in doing this. We'll pay you to do this or um, we'll help build fences. And actually what's happening to my neck of the woods is that we have a lot of conservation organizations that are going to our ranchers and saying, you know what, we really, um, we really want wildlife friendly fencing here and we will help you put it in, right? We will volunteer our time. We will pay for the fencing and we'll help you put some of that fencing in. Um, and that's coming up with some of these cooperative agreements. Now we're talking about um, elk, generally speaking, or antelope. Um, and sometimes there's an additional cost to the rancher uh, by allowing the elk and, and antelope to pass through their land for sure. They're eating some of that forage. Um, so that's, you know, sort of another part of the discussion. But what if it is an endangered species? Um, and if it's an endangered species, the rancher may say no. And we've mm -hmm. seen that when, when people want to restore watersheds and, you know, and, and, and our streams and suddenly there's an endangered species that um, might be part of that new stream. And they think, you know what, I don't want that because suddenly I am now liable under the Endangered Species Act, and I can't mm -hmm. do what I want to do. I can no longer manage um, the land or the stream or the timber the way I wanted to manage it, because now I have this big regulation on top of me. Um, and, you know, that really all comes down to, you know, what are the incentives that, that the institutions have? So what are the incentives that these regulations are driving? And if the regulation says, if you have an endangered species on your land, you can't use your land, or you can't, you know, you can't change your land, so you can't cut timber anymore, um, then a lot of timberland owners are going to say, well, I don't want the endangered species, so I'm not mm -hmm. going to manage for that habitat. And that's the exact opposite of what we're looking for, right? What if we said instead, you know, if you get an endangered species on there, um, then we will continue to allow you to manage that land. And maybe we have some compensation fund of some sort to, to help for that, um, you know, to help motivate you to keep the endangered species on the land instead of um, it, it being a liability. And so one of the famous lines that we often used to say at PERC is, you know, we want the... We we want species to be an asset, not a liability, because if the species is a liability, even if it's that elk that's eating your 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 forage for your cattle, then you're not going to manage for it. And if habitat is what we want, food forage is what we want, then we want to figure out how to you know increase that value to the rancher or increase that value to the timberland owner. And oftentimes we have these great regulations. Um, I shouldn't say great. We have these regulations that we think are great because we think they're they're going to do they're going to provide for all this habitat. And at the end of the day, they'd actually decrease the habitat because they've motivated people to not provide habitat instead. Exactly. You know, I, I often, my approach is it is, is if someone has an endangered species on their land, in our area, it's burrowing owl or swift fox. That's to me as a sign that they're managing their landscapes in a way right. that attracts those species. So keep on doing what you're doing. Let's not interfere with that. I also had one rancher say, say to me, you know, we're good at growing things. So pay me for each one that is on my property and you won't have an endangered species problem, a burrowing owl or swift fox. You'll have so many of them. You won't know what to do with them all. Have you ever, have you ever thought of, is that the kind of thing you're talking about compensating on the basis of, of uh, being able to improve the populations? It's quite an interesting thought because then you, you might end up um, really creating the, the kind of incentives that would, that would result in large population booms, you might think. Right, right. And, and compensation funds and, and compensating, um, you know, ranchers and other private landowners, for sure. We've definitely considered a lot of, of that. Sometimes it's as simple as going out and putting bird boxes out, right? I mean, you think mm -hmm. about the bluebirds mm -hmm. and we, um, I don't remember how long ago that was, but, but you know, there was this big effort to put bluebird boxes out and there was no cost to the landowner um, of having the bluebirds. It was just that they'd sort of lost their habitat. And so just by putting those bluebird boxes out, we motivated that, um, that species to sort of come back and, and flourish a lot, a lot better. One of the concerns I have when we think about compensation, you know, compensating 
anybody for anything is where's that money coming from and is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do have various compensation funds. We have, um, you know, folks that are willing to pay for for wolves or when when uh, ranchers have lost cattle to a wolf, there's there's compensation funds. Um, and I, I actually two points here that, that I think are really important. One, when we're compensating people for something that they've lost, right? Um, we've lost a, a cow because of the wolf. We are compensating them um, sort of in hindsight rather than motivating them to enhance the habitat. So I think we want to be a little bit careful about that. I, I, I think I think we need to do some of that because we think about who's gaining from the wolves and who's paying for them. Um, the ranchers are definitely the ones that are paying the burden. And those of us that love to go out and see the wolves and, um, you know, and, and, and sort of see that that ecological system is, is functioning more fully again, uh, we're benefiting, but we're not paying the cost. So I think we do want to keep those in mind, but better, how do we compensate them to enhance habitat for the wolves or enhance habitat for the elk rather than paying them for something that they've lost? Okay, let me make a similar argument then that on on timber management, because for me, timber management is absolutely essential to maintaining healthy landscapes, biodiversity, making sure that you've got growing trees that will capture CO2, reducing forest fire risk, which is vitally important. And yet there's this strange attitude that that I see um, in the environmental community often, which is when we create federal parks or public parks, they, they basically just want to build a fence around it, allow all of that brush and foliage and timber to grow up without any management whatsoever. And then everybody's surprised when we've got these massive forest fires that break out. And so there, there's obviously some kind of disconnect that is happening there. And I'm, I'm trying to see if, I think we're based on our last conversation, I think we're making some progress in looking at ranchers as landscape managers and stewards. Um, but I think But I think we need to make that same progress with our foresters as well. And I, I'm wondering why we have such a disconnect. Right. Uh, I would say that a big part of that disconnect is our um, our public land versus our private land. If you look at our forest in the United States, um, we have massive wildfire problems in the West. Um, there's certainly all sorts of other things going on, climate, et cetera. Um, but we have most of our public lands um, are in the West, very few um, in the Eastern part of the United States. And our Eastern forests are managed much better in the sense of we don't see the wildfires there. Um, We do see more uh, forestry going on there, more rotational forest, more, um, you know, forest production uh, taking place and bloggers that are basically getting out and working with private landowners to ensure that they have a, a, a healthy landscape. Let's come out, out west and um, obviously we have a drier um, climate out west so so you know there's there's a lot of factors going on here but out west 50% of the western United States is publicly owned. Um, a lot of that is our national forest land and our in our Bureau of Land Management lands and a lot of it is forested and we've not done a good job managing our forest over hundreds of years, right? Um, So if we go back to the 1905, when the the National Forest or the Forest Service was actually created, our National Forest actually started slightly before that, um, the whole purpose of the National Forests were to provide timber and to provide a continuous supply of water. And we look over time and we did a lot of timber harvesting um, and then pretty quick off the bat, we saw some wildfires and then the uh, wildfire of 1910, which was this huge fire in Idaho, Montana, um, just was devastating. And suddenly our forest service also had another role. Now that was to fight fire. Um, And they became very effective at that. 
So they fought fire and they continued to harvest timber in some areas. Um, and for a hundred years, we have essentially removed fire um, from the landscape. And that changes the dynamics of the landscapes tremendously. Um, and that's both on public and private lands in the West. And we also had this timber harvest in some areas that was way too much and maybe some areas that wasn't enough um, or, or, you know, wasn't at all. But then suddenly by about 1980, we decided that we didn't want, you know, we being sort of society saying, you know, the Forest Service is selling all this timber and they would call it, they were below cost timber sales because the revenues generated from the timber sold uh, was less than the actual cost of selling the timber. Well, we do need to be aware that the Forest Service has no goal of generating revenues from timber. That was never part of the mm. equation or the calculation of, of their management tool. Uh, basically, their management tool back in those days was really, we're supposed to be providing X amount of timber. Um, and so we're going to get out there and we're going to do these timber plans and, and we're going to use the science of the day that we have and we're going to cut timber. And we're going to remove that timber. And now suddenly we have groups saying, no, we don't want that much timber cut. And then we had the Northern Spotted Owl, which was an endangered species. And so we set aside, you know, 24 million acres um, that we're no longer allowed to cut timber on. And so we sort of flipped a switch from maybe cutting too much um, in certain areas to really not cutting much at all, maybe not cutting enough. And we have fire suppression. And now we've changed the structure of the forest and, you know, many forests. And I think we need to qualify as well. Some forests, only burn every 100 to 200 years, right? Mm. There are forest types that that is just common for them. And when they burn, they burn this big, huge conflagration like we see right now. And that might be perfectly normal. Other forests, let's say we're looking at, you know, lower elevation uh, ponderosa pine forest, historically burned every five to 25 years. And mm. they would do that. And as they burn, they would sort of clear the underbrush, clear the, the new saplings coming up. So that these were sort of wide open savanna type forest that you could actually you know pull a wagon train through back in the day today they're just dense little forests because we didn't allow it to burn and we didn't try to mimic that that fire and so we have all these trees that you know historically were these you know big large diameter trees that are now you know something that you could put your hands around and they're just you, you couldn't even walk through so we've entirely mm -hmm. changed the structure of that type of forest so then we see today we have you know a drier climate coming in we tend to have what's hotter summers in some of these areas and guess what there's all this litter as they call it it's all this you know the, these twigs and um materials from the forest that are dried out on the forest floor those get a spark they catch on and then you have all these dense forest in there so now it climbs the ladder of the of that forest and comes this big crown fire um, a, a fire that 100 years ago would have been a ground fire so mm. we've entirely changed the structure just through our different management types and it's and it's dangerous now it's um, very dangerous. I, I i don't know if you can remind us of just how bad the california wildfires ended up being but but you've got you had people die in those and and, and entire communities wiped out right communities wiped out we had a number of people die in 2020 we had something like 10 million acres of forest um in the united states burn up um it's 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 horrific right they are entirely out of control and fire is natural right fire is a natural process as i was saying we we don't want to eliminate fire from the forest but now we have 
we have to make some of these trade-offs, right? We have people that are living right next to the forest and more and more people are moving into the forest, right? We call it the wildland urban interface or the WUI and more and more people are moving uh, along the edge of the forest. So they're more subject to getting harmed by wildfire. At the same time that we have these fires that are much more um, at risk of a, of a big conflagration. And so something needs to be done. And sometimes it could be a, management of a sort of a restoration project where we're actually going in and we're trying to thin some of these forests that historically um, didn't have so many trees and would see sort of these ground fires and then we can do some prescribed burn. Um, other places, maybe it's not such a, uh, maybe it's not mimicking nature quite so much, but it's reducing the risk of, of great conflagration near communities and near homes. Mm -hmm. So so how big is the problem now? That's the only thing concern that I have is that I feel like you know, in my own town here, there must have been a lot of buffalo who came through because I've got a picture from 1903 from the water tower and there isn't a blade of grass or even a seedling for a, for, for a, a, a tree anywhere. So there must have been a lot of landscape disruption then. But now massive trees everywhere. And anytime you go into... Um, I drive through uh, several public parks because we've got some beautiful uh, forested parks in our area. I often wonder, are we doing enough management of the old and dying trees there? And so I, I feel like there are places where we have allowed the forest to grow up so dense, so thick, that I wonder if we can, if we could go and, and actively manage those landscapes again to get them to a more, uh, a more healthy condition. Or are we just now in this cycle for a period of time where nature's going to take its course and we just have to be prepared to increase our firefighting budget because we are going to have far more fires burning out of control. I I think there are things we can do, but it's not going to come from just dumping more money in into the into the national forest or into our agencies. Um, it, for it to be sustainable and for us to actually make a difference over time, we need to figure out what the the marketable products are, and we need to be in a partnership with um, with with investors, with industry, and with the government who owns the landscapes. And we can do that. And there are a lot of groups that are trying to do that, trying to get this sort of collaborative approach. Uh, but I think one of the keys that's kind of missing is we need to. Re really understand what what are the materials that we can pull out of the forest. And then we need to make sure that we're enabling investors to invest in making use of those products. And one of the problems that we have here in the United States is that we have these forest service contracts that are limited in, in time. Um, you have to get, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we do have timber that's removed. We have to go through a pretty um, strict environmental process that sometimes through, through what's called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, and sometimes forests can get through that process fairly readily, sometimes not. We're actually doing some research right now to try to sort of tease that apart a little bit as to why. My guess is that a lot of the reasons we can't get through some of these NEPA processes is because of, of endangered species and other things that are um, that are going on. Whereas in some areas where you don't have as many endangered species, it's a, it's a quicker, easier process. But we have to sort of get through that to begin with. But then the the agency itself can you know put the timber up for sale, but you have to have somebody that wants to buy it and that that's willing to go in there and remove some of these really small timbers and these other things. Some areas we have some good mills that still exist. Um, and so those mills are buying that product. Um, some areas mills have gone, you know, have gone under because we didn't allow, you know, mm. we weren't allowing much timber to be removed. And so there wasn't enough supply for them to stay in business. And we need to motivate some of those mills to come back. And in particular, a lot of this timber is smaller diameter. 
we know how to make all these really cool products, you know, glue limbs and other products that we can build really cool large buildings with by actually manufacturing the timber um, and using smaller timber to build huge, you know, beams and that kind of thing. But the the milling process and the milling and the manufacturing process is expensive to invest in. Mm. So we need to make sure that if we have materials in an area that we could imagine coming off of this landscape for the next 50 years, that we are allowing that type of a contract to be set up so that somebody's willing to invest in that mill. And I'm not saying we have to have a 50 year contract, but you have to have a contract that, that will provide a big enough return for somebody to invest in that milling and manufacturing capacity. And if the Forest Service decides they're going to pull out, which they have done many times here in the United States, then maybe we need some sort of a um, of a, of a repayment program that, that if the Forest Service decides, no, nope, we're not going to allow that timber to be sold anymore, that we're at least making these mills whole because nobody's willing to invest right mm. now. But once you know, we have that, it, we can get that supply chain going. Well, I wonder, did anyone go back and check to see whether the protection measures for the spotted owl worked? Do, do we have more spotted owls as a result of, of taking the protective approach? Because but, it seems to me when forests incinerate, that's not very good for spotted owl habitat either. For, for sure not. And actually what we're finding is, is, is that it's, it's almost more competition from other owls that have caused the problem with the spotted owl huh. than it is um, the timber harvesting itself, you know, and, and we have found spotted owls in all sorts of second um, growth forests. So yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of argument. I'm, I'm certainly not the specialist on it, but there's lots of argument that really setting aside this land was not, um, did not solve the problem, right? We still have a, a problem with, with the populations of spotted owls. Um, and yet they're, they're appearing in areas that we didn't expect them to appear. So, um, you know, sometimes we jump a little bit too quick to, to regulate something um, and have unintended consequences from it. I think that that is the going to be one of the big issues is that I think that it's easier to make the case that when you have healthy grasslands that benefits everyone, but I think it's a harder case to make that when you're pulling trees out that you're not impairing the the wildlife in the area. But I'm going to see if you can make that argument anyway. I mean, is there a way to clear cut an area and still be able to ensure that you're not taking any any animals or, or destroying any any of the of the critical habitat i think that's where people have a bit of a disconnect they think because they're mutually exclusive you, we have to prioritize one or the other other particularly when we're talking about endangered species is there another way i should be looking at that right i i think we have to realize what the that there are trade-offs again you know something that I, I tend to fall back on because people don't understand what those trade-offs are oftentimes and mm -hmm. so as we've seen our forests change in structure let's just go to Flagstaff for example Flagstaff Arizona um, was one of those forests you know a hundred years ago that we actually have these pictures of that you know had these big huge ponderosa pine trees um, and the antelope ran through and it was called antelope springs nearby there and um, you know you can just sort of imagine your antelope fro frolicking there right a hundred years later we've suppressed fire, we've not harvested the timber, and now we have these really dense trees that the antelope can't fit through those trees anymore. But, you know, I mean, you can barely walk through them. They're these little spindly trees, but now it's home to the endangered goshawk, which is better. I mean, I, I don't know which is better, right? Nature is dynamic and nature will change. And I think what, and, and, and we humans are going to dictate what that looks like. And, you know, people say we want just nature to do it. Well, we've let nature do it. But the only reason we've let nature do it is because we didn't do anything in it. Right. We managed it and then we didn't manage it. And so at the end of the day, it's going to be anthropocentric. Right. It's going to be humans that are deciding sort of what this looks like at the end. So we need to decide what we want 
and then go that way. If reduced fire risk around our communities is what we want, and I would suggest it is, that will also help our watersheds, um, then we need to manage that way. And we're going to have some trade-offs that there are going to be some species that are impacted. Um, you know, we do for sure. We want to look, okay, say the spotted owl is in a certain area and we know it's actually living happily there. Then maybe that's an area that we don't want to um, do much, you know, physical management on at this time or harvesting on at this time, but we have to understand what those trade-offs are. And on our public lands, one of the difficult things is that everybody sees it a little bit differently and wants something a little different out of it. So when it comes to actually defining what that outcome is, um, it's really hard and our agencies don't have a, a really clear ability to say this is what we're doing um, without some, you know, some political say in what that process looks like. And right now, I would say it's probably wildfire management. Well, I want you to maybe change my thinking on this, because I, I think part of what our framework has been has been a land use framework. Is it actually we do have a land use framework in the area that I'm in and there's the the idea that we understand that there's these overlapping areas and overlapping interests, but it all becomes very heavily regulated and it's a political negotiation. And it depends on who has the upper hand in the negotiations or with the government that's elected or the period of time. And it strikes me there's got to be a better way to do it. I mean, I wonder if maybe the issue is that we need to have a better inventory of everything so that if we know where our valuable mining um, and mineral resource wealth is and our oil and gas wealth and where the very best timber is for development of forestry and where the pristine grasslands are for our, our, our cattle grazing, as well as our farmland, because we have um, excellent land for farming. And then you layer on top of that all of the different endangered species and where their areas are. Like you'd think that if you have that information, then you you should be able to create the kind of system you're talking about where you allow for an open auction people decide which of their interests is best reflected by those landscapes and you allow for a dynamism to take place i, I don't know that i've ever seen that not in operation anywhere but based on our conversation it occurs to me that might be a better way to approach it but how do you how do you get there from where we are right now how do you release the market to work in the kind in the kind of environment that's gotten so bureaucratic and so used to the kind of command and control that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. you know, I would say on, on our on our private lands, individual industry does that right. They go out and they say, okay, this is where the the really good timberland is. This is the timberland that I really want. One of the problems that we see is on our public lands, we're now restricted by regulations that people, you know, we assume that that our forest service is the best at managing our national forest and has really good, smart people working for them under silviculture, right? That, that really understand the forest and the rotational process of that. Well, that's true and not true. Um, you know, no one person has all that information for one thing. And then we actually look at our forest service, we have reduced the staff numbers over time and we've moved away from the forest scientist and into, you know, more people that are doing wildfire. We also have more um, ecologists and wildlife biologists, which is a good thing. So we're trying to get that balance there. Um, but we don't have that many people that really understand true forestry anymore. So, um, you know, who are the experts there? Well, the experts are really the people that are in the industry saying, you know, we are the ones that, that are cutting the timber, that are producing the product, that are trying to provide the out, the product that, that consumers want. And I think that people need to remember that we cut timber, not because, you know, not because the timber industry is, is we just want to cut a whole bunch of trees because we like trees. Right. They cut it for us. 
right? They cut us so that we have good timber products at a low cost. Um, and we need to keep that in mind. And they are the ones that are actually out there and that are innovative that are saying, I need to do it at a low cost because I have to compete with the other timber industries that exist out there, the other timber companies that are um, that are adjacent to me versus one individual in, in government being able to say, this is the right answer, right? Here is the solution. No one has all that information, mm. right? And so I, I love the idea of a map and I keep saying this about a particular area in, in, in my region, you know, if we just had a map that had all this information and it would be wonderful um, if you had that map and maybe you could actually sort of, you know, allocate things out. But I think you do have to come back down to, you want the market to be the one that's allocating it because we all have different values for different things. And, um, you know, one person that thinks this is the, the most perfect area for a house, there might be somebody else that says, actually, that, you know, that's the perfect area for um, for the goshawk or for whatever, right, for, for some other species. And, and it is those those different values and our willingness to pay for different resources um, that's and willingness to accept that's actually going to get us the the outcomes that we desire society, it's not going to be zero pollution. It's not going to be a hundred percent pristine, you know, wilderness. It's going to be something in between there. And it takes all of us and that cooperative approach to help get us there rather than one person dictating because one person doesn't have all that information. One person doesn't know. Let me tell me how I sort of look at the environment now. And you can tell me whether we're close to this or moving further away from this. I, I went, uh, there was a, a mining operation that ended up, wrapping up and they were quite smart. They brought in a bunch of environmental professionals to restore the the, the mines. They had all these pictures of the before when it was all a mess and then the during while they were doing the reclamation. And then afterwards, and they had, you know, beautiful big horn sheep up on a craggy mountainside and you'd never would have known that it was, uh, that it had previously been a mining operation. But the ethic of the company was that um, we know that we're disturbing the land when we do a mining operation. But our goal is to cause as little environmental damage as possible while we're developing the land and then to return it as close as possible to its natural condition after we're through. I thought, you know what, that, what more can you ask for? That's actually quite a brilliant approach. But I don't see that kind of trade-off, uh, that kind of balancing of priorities. Um, and I don't, I don't see the benefit of the doubt necessarily being given to, to, to companies that that's what they're going to do. So maybe, maybe I'm being pessimistic, but do you think that's the right uh, balance that we should be aiming for? And do you think we're moving closer to that kind of balance or are we moving further away? Are we becoming more polarized? I, you know, I, I would say that's sort of the the ideal from sort of an uh, economics perspective is is that you know we, we realize that we have these trade offs. We want the minerals, uh, but we also want the habitat, right? And we also want the the beauty. And if we have those clear property rights, so that somebody is liable for damage done, then you know you really have these mining companies that are going in there and saying, okay, I'm liable for damage done. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to re remove the minerals, um, but then I do have to sort of you know restore that landscape or rehabilitate that landscape or 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 hire somebody to do that, um, then in my mind, that is actually that, 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 that's that complete property right. And if you think about at the end of the day, how is that land most valuable, right? I mean, people say, well, mining companies will never do that. Well, what is, if they actually own the land and at the end of the day, they just leave this pit, it's not worth very much, right? Mm -hmm. If they, you know, restore it, it's got a huge value. And so the incentive should be to restore it problem is 
that maybe that's an externality, right? That that beauty that we all get to see, that we all know is there. And especially when we have other public lands that we can go to, then, you know, maybe just leaving that land, especially if it's in a developing country, is the lowest cost way to do it and to move on. And that's what we saw in our history um, in America. You know, people would just leave it and move on. And now I think, you know, these companies are understanding, no, what we really want and what society really wants is, is you know, we want the minerals, but we also want the beauty. And they're more willing to go back and restore that because they, we do have the laws now, the, the, the liability, that protection of our property rights that are really important. Um, and there's also a reputation, right? Mm -hmm. And that matters. As we become more prosperous, we pay a lot more attention to that. Whereas, you know, if we're in the developing world, we don't have a lot of time to pay attention to that. And it's not a big stake in our, in our livelihoods. Quite well, thank you so much for this and for helping us all to understand a little bit more about what free market environmentalism means and how important it is to have markets and property rights. I sure appreciate the conversation. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. This is uh, have been, has been Holly Fretwell, who is a research associate with the Property and Environment Research Center, as well as a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 